So how much is a trillion dollars? I want you to think about this. I saw this on the internet once. I thought this was helpful to, to see this visualized because sometimes we talk about these large amounts of money, a million dollars, a billion dollars, a trillion dollars. It's all, it's all sounds basically the same. You got million, billion, trillion, same thing, right? Like, no, no, it's not. It's, uh, okay, so th- this is helpful to kind of visualize. We can visualize this. This is a $100 bill, okay? It's just, this is a small thing. You could put this in your pocket. This is uh, just one little piece of paper. It's $100. $100 is, is not nothing. You can do some nice things. If you found $100 uh, walking along the road, you would be pretty thrilled. I mean, you might be happy if you found a dollar, but this is $100. Okay, so this is just our starting point to visualize. So with that in mind, $10,000, okay, would look like this. So you'd have a packet of money, and oh, $10,000, okay, that's, that's a lot more than $100. You could do some serious damage with, with $10,000. That would be a nice thing to have. That's, you wouldn't expect somebody for a gift to give you $10,000. But that's about the size. You could still, you could stuff it in your pocket, uh, carry it with you. Now, with that in mind, think of the size of $1 million in $100 bills. And basically, it would look like this, uh, compared to a, a person standing there. A uh, $1 million is a lot of money, Okay. Uh, people would do a lot for, you go on a game show and try and, you know, survive, you know, your month on the island so you can make a million dollars. But basically, you could fit this in a backpack or a duffel bag and walk around with your million dollars. And it's still, it's still a lot of money. But we're saying how much is, is uh, a, a billion or a trillion? So $100 million, if you're going to visualize it the same way, in $100 bills, is basically a pallet of uh, $100 bills. Now, a pallet of anything is a lot, okay, if you're getting something in a, in a pallet. So that would be $100 million. So we'll keep going here. So a billion dollars, $1 billion. Remember a million, you could fit it in the, uh, the duffel bag. A billion dollars, there would be, would be 10 pallets, of $100 bills. So now with this in mind, you realize how much difference a billion is to a million. Now you think of a trillion and what that's going to look like. So a trillion looks like this. Now, I don't know if you can tell, that person is standing their way to the left. Okay? And these pallets, they're, they're double stacked in this graphic. Okay, that's a trillion dollars. Incidentally, I did look up just this morning, our national debt right now is $19 trillion and $939 billion and, and change. So, but don't think about that right now, okay? <laughs> put that out of your mind, just happy thoughts. That's, we're about happy thoughts here this morning, so put that out of your mind. So why did I show you this? What does this have to do with anything? Well, maybe it has nothing to do with anything. Maybe it's just a random thing at the beginning, or or maybe this will have something to do with the message. Today we're going to be talking about how to love God more. That's the title of this message. We're going to be looking at Luke 
chapter 7, 36 through 50, how to love God more. And I think this is something that many Christians will say they struggle with this. Many Christians will say they realize that they should have even more of a love for God than what we actually have. That we should love God even more. We should have a deeper appreciation, a deeper real heartfelt sense of love and gratitude and awe towards, towards God. And how do we have that? And I think one of the things that we'll see in this passage is a huge uh, key to how each of us we can grow in love for God. And something that if we don't realize this, is something that is going to stunt us in our love for God. Something that maybe if we don't love God as much as we should or we ought to or we want to, that this might be part of the reason that is holding us back. So let's look at this, this fantastic story in uh, Luke chapter 7. And I'll say this, we'll read the first half, we'll do this in two sections. We're reading in Luke, in Matthew, Mark, and John, there's a similar story about a woman that comes in and does something similar. But there, it's at the home of Simon the leper, where here in Luke, it's the home of a Pharisee named Simon. So it's a little bit confusing because there's two different things that happened in the life of Christ. They both happened at the home of someone named Simon, but Simon was also a very common name in the day, so we have to not let that throw us too much. So this is the account of what happened at the home of Simon the Pharisee, starting chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Let's stop right there, this first half of this story, and look at this. What we see is a, a great display of love by this woman. Now there's some cultural things that will help us to understand this and to really uh, get a grasp of what's going on. Some things that may be very different from uh, from our culture, although our culture may have parallels too. Now, if you invite someone over to your home, there's certain kind of understood things that you're supposed to do if you're a good host. So someone comes to your door and they, they knock on your door, ring your doorbell, you open the door for them, and, and probably what is you know, one of the first things that you do is that you invite them in. Okay, so it's kind of awkward if they don't know if they're supposed to come in or not. And then there's other certain things that we realize a good host does for someone if we want to make them feel welcomed. You know, if we maybe don't want them to feel welcomed, you know, go away, we wouldn't do these things. But if we're wanting them in, you know, we would say things like, you know, if it's winter, can I take your jacket? And you take your ja their jacket, you would put it somewhere. Uh, you would say, you know, can I offer you a drink? 
and you would, you know, hey, we have Coke and we have water, what, what would you like? And you would offer to get them a drink. Uh, you'd probably uh, give them, you know, a handshake or, or maybe a hug, depending on who they are, what your relationship with them is, what's appropriate. So there's certain things that we would do. If the TV's on, you would turn off the TV to show that you're giving them your attention. There are certain things, too, in that culture that you would do as well. So Simon the Pharisee is inviting Jesus into his home. It was considered an honorable thing to invite a a great teacher into your home, uh, to bring them in and to to honor them and hear them teach. So so Simon the Pharisee is inviting Jesus, because he has this reputation, this this great teacher, into his home. But we're going to see later, he skips some of the nice things that you would do. Like, you know, we would offer them the, you know, drink of water, whatever it is. Uh, there's certain things that they would have done. They would have offered them some uh, water to wash their feet. Uh, at least doing that, if not, you know, having a servant wash their feet or something along those lines. Uh, they would have, um, we would give, you know, hugs or, you know, a handshake. Uh, there, uh, they would give, uh, you know, some kind of a, 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 some kind of a kiss, a friendly, uh, you know, kiss on the cheek. Uh, would mean something different in that culture than it would for us. And uh, they would offer them some uh, oil to, uh, to anoint themselves. And we're going to see later, he didn't do any of these things. So, but Jesus comes in, and it, it says that uh, he ends up reclining at the table. Now here's another thing that I think is a, a bit, quite a bit different from how we normally uh, eat and we gather together. And I th- it was kind of interesting, I thought it was kind of fun looking into this and some of the cultural background. And I think it actually helps us to make more sense of the story and how it works out if we can visualize it. Because uh, it really wasn't like we see in a lot of pictures, even like the one on the screen right now, that Jesus is sitting at a table at a normal chair like we would have. Uh, in, in the first century in Greek and Roman and also in, in Hebrew homes, they would recline when they would eat, at least at a more uh, fancier occasion like this. And so when it talks about him reclining, it doesn't mean he's just leaning back on his chair. They would actually have um, kind of like couches or different things, and they would recline to eat. And so how it would work is they would have the table, and they would have some kind of couch or something, and the people would come and they would lay down, okay? So they would lay like this, they would lay on their, uh, their left arm, kind of support themselves, and then they would have the table, maybe it was here or kind of in front of them, and then they would use their right hand and they would eat like this. And so they would all be um, kind of lounging like this, reclining as they're eating. So the table was usually in the center, and you might, depending on how many people there were, they might have a small table and you could actually pack a few people in because uh, around a small table, or maybe uh, for a larger gathering, there was a kind of a U shape. I'll show you a picture of uh, one of those. Okay, in that culture, they actually call their dining rooms triclinium's because a triclinium, uh, tri means three, and think cline to recline. Okay. And so, like in this picture, there's three of these uh, couch-type things, and they would have these low tables. It was a lower table, like, more like a coffee table. 
So if you want to go home today as a family and say, we're going to reenact this and we're going to, we're going to eat like, you know, the first century, you can all gather on the coffee table, you know, get everyone, you know, get, take the cushions off the couch and uh, just kind of recline and, and, and eat like Jesus, okay? And <clears throat> at least at these fancy things. And so with this, uh, if there was, let's say, three of these uh, large uh, couch type things, you would actually have a few people that would be on them next to each other, kind of all angled at the table or a U-shaped table that they would have. And so um, this would mean that their, their heads would be towards the middle and their feet would be extending out towards the edges. So when this woman comes in and starts, you know, weeping at Jesus' feet, you can visualize how this would be a little bit more. Also, when there was an event like this where you had a uh, a well-known teacher come in, uh, these were s- considered kind of semi-public events, that it was considered okay for other people to come in and kind of watch what was going on. You know, they didn't, you didn't get to sit at the table, but if you wanted to sit against the wall and kind of admire, you know, the host with his, you know, his teacher, uh, you were allowed to come in and, and do that. So they wouldn't have been completely uh, thrown off by the fact that there were some other people uh, that were there, that were there watching. I'll say this too: when you think of uh, what this would have been like with them re- reclining and with their their feet out and all of this, sometime when you get a chance, read the story of the Last Supper again. Uh, for example, in John thirteen twenty-one through thirty, uh, when you have a chance to do that, because it talks about them reclining together at the table, and it talks about there's a part where where John is reclining with his uh, back, leaning his back against Jesus because they would all kind of lay and kind of next to each other, all facing the same direction. And there's a part where Jesus talks about someone's going to betray me and Peter, who's probably across the way, kind of signals to John saying, who is it? Find out. And it talks about John kind of leans back up against Jesus and asks him. It all makes sense if you're thinking about it uh, kind of with this type of a way of sitting around a table. I'll admit this is different. Okay, this is, this is, it would seem very strange to me to eat this way. Um, if you invited me over and, you know, this is how you had things set up, uh, it, it would be, it'd be a little bit different. But uh, that's how they did it back, back in those days. So you have them eating here, and this woman finds out that it says she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she comes in and she has an alabaster flask of ointment. And we can tell, obviously, she has a heart that's just filled with gratitude towards God, towards Christ, and what he has uh, done for her. And she wants to go and anoint him. And I think before she can get there, she's, she is sobbing. She is overcome with her, her love and her gratitude. I mean, when it talks about her tears here, her weeping, the same word is also used to describe rain showers. Okay, so this woman is not self-composed. I mean, she has, she has lost it with emotion. And so she starts just, uh, you know, she's wetting just his feet with, with her tears. And then she undoes her hair and she's to drying him with, with her hair, which would have been considered, it was a very, um, loosening the hair in the presence of a, another was considered improper in those days. You just, you didn't do it as a woman. Uh, in public or with someone that was not your husband. This would have been very an unseemly thing that she was doing. But I think she, she didn't care. She was overcome with her, 
her love and her emotion for Jesus Christ and expressing that, but making this huge scene. And so you have Simon the Pharisee, and so he's reacting to this and basically saying to himself, Jesus, uh, obviously you're not a prophet because if you really were, you would know what kind of woman this is. She's a sinner. So probably probably a prostitute or former prostitute or someone very notorious. And so Simon's saying, Jesus, if you knew, you wouldn't be letting her touch you like this or express this. You'd be saying, no, get away, a woman. And so then Jesus, he goes on and he gives a reply. So let's read the second half of this message from verse 40 through verse 50. And our first part was about a, a, a great display of love. Our second part here is a great forgiven debt. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loves much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus tells kind of this story to, to illustrate about these two people that owed money to this money lender. Money that they couldn't pay. One owed uh, 50 denarii, another 500. A denarii was about a day's wage for a, for a soldier or for a day laborer. Okay, there were wealthier people that made more, but common people, this is how much they made in a whole day. So if you think of the amounts here, it's basically one is ten times uh, the other. So basically you have one person owed two months' worth of salary, and the other was about a year and three quarters. Okay, so close to two years. So think to yourself, you know, what is your two months' worth of salary? I mean, if you owed that, that would, you know, that, that'd be a lot to have to, to cough up. If you had almost two years' worth, ah, yeah, that's, that's a lot, especially if, you know, you have to be paying this or else. And so Jesus is saying, you know, imagine that you have these two scenarios and they're both forgiven. Yeah, who is going to love the one that canceled the debt more? So the answer is obvious. The one that has the, the bigger debt that's forgiven is going to have more love. So here's the principle that I think this is teaching, is that whoever is forgiven little loves little. 
if you don't think that you've been forgiven very much, there's not going to be that much of a heart reaction that you're going to have to what God has done to forgive you. But the opposite of that must also be true, is that whoever is forgiven much loves much. And that's what Jesus was saying about this woman. She realized how much she had been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of that, her love was so great that she came in making this huge scene and being willing to, to give of this, this costly uh, ointment that she had and, and just this huge emotional, just gushing uh, manifestation because she was so overwhelmed because she realized how much she had been forgiven because she understood the great depths of her sin. So here's the thing. When we talk about God forgiving us, however much you realize that you have been forgiven, it's going to impact how much love you have for Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, if someone comes over to your house and says, you know what, they, they ring your doorbell and it's a good friend of yours and they say, hey, I noticed you had a, you had a bill outside by the mailbox. And I wasn't trying to be snoopy, but I, I noticed it and I had this bill and I saw your bill and I paid your bill. Now, assuming you're good friends that it doesn't weird you out too much that they're paying your bills and looking at this, but you, the fact that they paid your bill, you would be thankful, but you wouldn't at that time know how thankful you're supposed to be until you know what bill this is. Okay? Because there might be a bill, maybe there's just a uh, postage due, okay, that was in your, uh, your mailbox and it was just like less than a dollar, and you say, well, that was a nice thing that you paid this. You know, maybe there was another uh, bill for some uh, subscription or something that, wow, that was kind of nice that you paid this. Maybe it was even something bigger. You know, they're paying your whole uh, you know, quarterly uh, you know, electric bill or they're paying, you know, which bill is this? Uh, is this some small thing? Are you, did you pay my car payment? Did you pay my, my school loan? Did you pay my mortgage off? Okay, you don't know how much you need to be appreciating this friend and what they did for you until you know what bill this was and how much that they took care of. So in the same way, when we talk about, you know, Jesus paid it all. He paid for our sin. He paid our debt that we have before God. Until we really realize what a huge debt this is, you're not going to know how much to really be thankful to God for what He did for us. And the more that we realize this, the more that you are going to be thankful for Him, the more that you are increase in love. Because whoever is forgiven little loves little. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. And too often we think that we have been forgiven much less than we actually have. Here's the thing. The size of the gap in your mind between two things, between the height of God's holiness and the depth of your sinfulness is the size in your mind of God's loving grace. So let me explain this because I think this is a huge thing to realize. Okay, the amount that to you, in your mind, in your heart, 
that you're going to think of how big God's love and grace is is determined by the gap between these two things. So let me bring this over to illustrate this a little bit more. So let's say at the, at the top we have God's, God's holiness and the opposite of holiness is, is our sinfulness. So what in your mind is the gap between these two things? So if you think, let's say there's kind of a baseline in the middle here, okay? And if you think that, well, God is, God is kind of holy, you're you've starting to get an idea for that. And so you think it's, uh, you know, right about here, he's holier than us, and you realize you're, you know, you're kind of sinful, okay? Okay, there's a, there's a small gap, you know, between these two things, and you realize you need Jesus. Now, when, if you're a Christian, if you're saved, there's a time where you realize this. You realize that God is holy, He is just, and you are a sinner, and you needed Jesus Christ. And so you started to realize this. If you, if you didn't realize there was a gap here, well, you're, you're not saved yet because you don't think you needed saving from anything. But let's say as you grow as a Christian, you start to realize, well, God is, he is more holy than I thought he was. He is majestic. He is an awesome creator. He is so set apart from, from sin. And your knowledge of, of God's holiness grows. And let's say, also too, you start to realize more and more what a, what a sinner that you are. And so there's even more of a gap you know, between these two things. And so there, the size that you see of, of God's love and His grace for you is continuing to grow as you realize more the depth of your sin. You realize more things, I didn't realize it was this bad. You know, you start to struggle against sin because you say, you know, I've been doing this stuff my whole life and I didn't care, but now I want to please God, so I want to try and fight against this. And you realize, wow, it's hard. i got all these parts of my heart that want to sin. I, I'm worse than I thought. And it's... And the more that you grow, you keep realizing, <laughs> well, you realize you're a sinner, but you also realize, and God saved me, even though I'm, I'm even worse than I thought I was, and God still saved me. Wow, He is even more good. He is even more holy. He is even more exalted and amazing than I thought He was. And you're in your Word, you're, you're growing, and you're realizing more you know, how great He is, and uh, growing and growing. And as you do that, you realize, wow, when I sin, I'm sinning against such a great God. And so you're understanding more the depth of your sin. And so as you keep doing this, the amount of love that you realize, the amount of grace that He has just keeps growing in your mind. So it's this gap between how we view God's holiness and we view our sinfulness. Now it's how you view it because God always is maximum holiness. Okay? But we don't realize that. But the more we realize it, and the more we realize our sinfulness, the more that this does grow. And when this happens, it means also that the more that we realize how valuable and how awesome the cross of Jesus Christ is to us, that the cross 
was not this, this small thing, but that the cross was this amazing, amazing thing. That Jesus did a big, big thing when he was on the cross. And when you first became a believer, you may have thought it was important. You realized it was important, but you didn't realize how important and what a big deal it is. But the more that we grow in our Christianity, the more we realize this. So, again, the, the message is how to love God more. So I want to help you out here. I want to help you. The key here is if you realize how much you've been forgiven, how big of a debt we have, the more that we're going to realize how much <laughs> the bill that God actually paid for us. So I want to tell you something here. And I want to tell you this in love. Okay? This is, this is truth, but this is love. You are a big, big sinner. Okay? I'm telling you that it's true, and I'm telling you that in love. And I'm telling you that because that's part of the key from this passage on how you can love God more. That, yes, you are a big, big sinner. And if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a big, big, big forgiven sinner with a huge debt that has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And I think to help us realize this, I want to think of some of the things that sin actually is. So I think of, I want to show you this, five types of sin. I want you to think about this and meditate on this because the more you realize this, this will help you realize, wow, yeah, I am a bigger sinner than I thought I was. And the point here is not to just make you leave here feeling guilty and miserable. The point here is that hopefully you leave feeling forgiven of a huge, huge debt. And then you have love for Jesus Christ because of this. First of all, there's, I'm going to just do five of these. There are sins of commission, okay? Sins that you commit. These are sins that we, sins of doing, sins that we do. So, for example, all of the you shall nots in Scripture, when you do a you shall not, that is a sin of commission. You know, you shall not lie, you shall not murder, commit adultery, all these things. There's external versions and there's internal heart versions, okay? So, hating someone is killing them in your heart. Lusting after someone is committing adultery in your heart. It, so even right there, we could realize, wow, yep, uh, big sinner. There's a lot of things I do outside and inside that are wrong. There's also sins of not doing, sins of omission. Like when you omit something, it's, you're not doing something that you should be doing. James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So don't think that you could just sit in your room and sit in a chair and be happy and not bother everyone, and therefore you're okay because you're not out sinning. Because there could be all kinds of things that you're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing it. And if you're supposed to be doing it and not doing it, that's sin too. So you could be sinning by not doing anything. But let's add to this. I think you can also talk about sins of reminiscing. And sometimes you can look up this passage in Ezekiel. It talks about somebody remembering the days of her youth playing the, the whore in the land of Egypt. I think it's also sin when you, we think back on past sins 
And we take enjoyment in that. Uh, remember when I did that thing? Or remember when I got that guy? Or whatever this, you know, these, these things. When you think back on sin with relish and enjoyment, you're reliving that. We're sinning again by doing that. In the same way, something kind of similar, sins of, of fantasizing. So these may be things that uh, you're never actually, you ever, never actually get around to doing, but you're fantasizing about doing these things. You're fantasizing about the, the things that you would like to be able to do to your boss. Okay? And maybe, you know, social niceties or lack of opportunity are keeping you from doing all the evil in your heart, but you're still taking enjoyment in your mind of imagining evil things. That is sin as well. Let's add a fifth one. Sins of planning. It's where you're actually planning to do some type of sin. Maybe you never get to it, but it's, it's sin even before you get to it. If you're there planning to rob this bank or planning to, to hook up with someone you're not supposed to be hooking up with or planning whatever evil it is or to accidentally fall into something that you know what you're planning to do, that's sin even before you get into it because it's a sinful heart that is, that is planning to go into this. That verse in Proverbs says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and this is the one, and a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. So you think of all these things and you realize, well, okay, yeah, I'm more of a sinner than I thought. This is almost like a constant stream of sinfulness. Especially when you realize it can be external or internal. And let me add this one to you as well. This is a sin of omission. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It means everything that we do should be at least (laughs) indirectly for God's glory. That means anything that we're doing that we're doing not for God's glory is sin. Which means that before we were Christians, it was constant, absolute sin all the time because we never did anything for God's glory. And add this to it. That even the smallest sin is a sin against an infinitely holy God. When you think of that, you meditate on that, you realize, wow, (laughs) it's getting more and more and more sinful. You always were, we I always was, but the more actually, that's the paradox, the more that you grow as a Christian, in a sense, also the more that you realize what a sinner that you are. And in a way, it's a good thing that you realize that because the more that you realize how huge the cross is. And that's really, it's the the Christian life is this growth and we're growing in our knowledge of God's holiness and we're growing also in the realization of our sinfulness. And the cross becomes bigger and bigger to us. That's what it was like with the Apostle Paul. Okay? Because we don't want to be like, I read a story about the the Countess of Huntington she was invited to hear George Whitfield preach. And when she was invited, she, she replied and said, it is a monstrous 
thing to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on this earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. I don't want to hear George Whitfield tell me that I'm a sinner. I'm too well-bred for that. But compare that to the Apostle Paul. If you look in Scripture, in one of his earlier letters, in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Okay, he's, viewing, so he's an apostle, but the least of them. In Ephesians, written later, 3.8, he calls himself least of the saints. And one of the last letters, 1 Timothy 1.15, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. Obviously, he was growing as a Christian, but as he was doing that, he was realizing more and more what his sinfulness was really like. So, how to love God more? Realize more that He is holy? Realize more that, that we are sinners, that you personally are a sinner? And ask yourself, does this gratitude actually show in your life? It showed in this woman, and it may show in different ways in our life, but if we go through life and there's, there's nothing that displays this, nothing that anyone would ever see this, have any inclination that there's something in our heart that is actually blown away, that we are so just in awe of the awesome grace of God that has been poured out for us in Jesus Christ and what He did for us. That we just can't believe this. This should be something that is, is going to come out in our lives. It has to affect us. Or else it maybe it means that we are, have such a small view of the cross. I need to point out that this love does not cause our forgiveness. Love is a proof of our prior forgiveness. Jesus forgives sins. The Pharisees here they, they said, Who is this that forgives sin? Like, that's only something God can do. Well, yeah, that's part of the point that Jesus was making. And we're saved not by, by our good works, not by our, our emotions, but by having faith. At the end, Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. Her faith is what receives the salvation that Jesus Christ had would for her, would earn for her. And for us that He did earn for us when He paid it all on the cross. So no matter what, here's what I want you to hear. Jesus received this woman, this scandalous, sinful full woman. No matter how much of a sinner that you are, no matter how much of a sinner you are, and it's actually probably worse than you think, but Jesus will not reject you if you come to Him in faith. Jesus will not reject you if you come to Him in faith. Now, I'm going to say this again because there's someone here that needs to hear this. Because you believe that you're such a sinner that you can't come to Him, that He would reject you. And this is telling you from God's Word, Jesus will not reject you. If you turn to Him, you come to Him in faith. Jesus paid it all on the cross. He did everything that is required for your salvation. You have to do nothing except turn to Him, lay down your rebellion, come to Him, and receive what He has paid in full for you. Sinner Christ will be gracious to you if you come to Him. 
And for Christians, how much is it that you have been forgiven? Consider, is it just a little bit? Or have you been forgiven more than you could possibly imagine? Praise God for His amazing grace to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe that You could love us this much. That when You went to the cross for us, that You paid a debt that is more than we can even possibly imagine. Lord God, even the smallest speck of sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of absolutely infinite condemnation. It's infinitely terrible. And You paid it all for us, Lord God. We give You praise. We give You thanks. Help us to see our sinfulness so that we can love You more for Your forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.